Hello and welcome to UE Bristol's Let's Talk Now podcast. In this brand new series, we're tackling the stigma around mental health by encouraging everyday conversations and sharing positive stories from our students, staff and partners about mental health and wellbeing. In this special episode, which is the first in the series, we listen in to a conversation between Steve West, Vice-Chancellor of the University, and Marvin Rees, Mayor of Bristol. They talk about how personal experiences have shaped their views on mental health and how inequality in the community can create barriers to developing good mental health. Just, just by way of background, really, my mother-in-law is bipolar hmm. and my wife uh, grew up with a mother who really couldn't support her or her sister because she was bipolar and therefore quite... Uh, difficult in terms of being able to balance all of that. So my wife's experience of mental health and poor mental health in particular is significant and and is something that we've talked about. And certainly when she was growing up, um, she had um, eating disorders as part of how she was coping. And then um, when I was going through, I guess, my breakup of my marriage there were really some dark times when you start to wonder how how have you got here and what what are the ways through it uh so i've got personal experience and and obviously i've got family experience and i guess that's the thing that sensitized me to just how important it is to really begin to talk about your experiences and to recognize that actually everybody's got mental health you're on a it's a continuum it's a spectrum mm. sometimes we wake up in the morning and we're not feeling great physically well the same thing can also be true mentally and emotionally so how do we have those very natural sorts of conversations then as leaders how do we start to create uh, an environment a city a place a business, an organisation that can really engage with its people. Because at the end of the day, we're all human. We've all got the same makeup and we're all going to have the same sorts of experiences. And at points, we're going to need support and help. And I guess that's what's been my motivator, really, to get to get to start to think about this more strategically and, and, I, and I guess in a more focused way. See, I didn't really think about mental health as a big society issue until I joined the NHS and I joined the right. public mental health team yeah. working on race inequality in mental health, yeah. which is another really uh, stark feature. But that didn't mean that it wasn't part of my life. So in some sense, I got a bit of a parallel experience there that my father-in-law uh, was diagnosed bipolar. And um, when I was engaged to my wife, there was a time when she phoned me up and he was having a manic mm. um, episode mm. and no one knew what it, uh, what it was. Um, and I was just hearing about all these things going on and how will I support my, you know, fiance as it was, yeah. um, at the time. Um, and then over the last few years, we've been on that journey that's kind of been in parallel because then I did join the public mental health team. We got bipolar in a family and working with, uh, people who would describe themselves as mental health service survivors yeah. <laughs> because the response of the health service was, heavily um you know medicine yeah. uh, related yeah, and and definitely medical model what we've seen with my, my father-in-law is that actually the um the drugs have almost robbed sometimes robbed them of personality mm. they've so so they, they haven't dealt with 
uh, what was going on. They've just subdued subdued him. Yeah. But actually, in my in my immediate story as well, which is which is a huge part of my own personal development, was my childhood. So my mum, uh, brown baby, poor, unmarried, nineteen seventy two, and my my nan just passed away, and we buried her um, yesterday. Oh. Um, but it meant that we were telling all these stories again. Yeah. And my mum was saying, you know, she was talking about people that were saying to her, you're a bad woman and had nothing positive to say about her pregnancy. Um, I, and then a few people started to say positive things. But anyway, all those circumstances um, and stuff with my, my father meant that um, we ended up, my mum ended up depressed and we ended up going to live in a refuge uh, down in Exmouth. Right. And so actually some of my early years and all those feelings of vulnerability I've carried my whole life, which yeah. has pushed me to combat and physical sports and yeah. not wanting to be physical, physically vulnerable and wanting to protect my family, have come from, I know, those formative years in which my mum was really struggling. Yeah. And we looked for those places of safety. And yeah. we, you know, we dealt with the times my mum would just say, I'm tired all the time. And that was depression, right? Yeah. I can't get up. I'm and, and I would be, you know, two, three, four, five years old. I'm, yeah. that is it. My mum is a spectacular mum, right? And um, so I'm not saying this to, to, to say anything about that. She brought two children up in the city, mixed race, in the middle of all the poverty, the riots and everything. My sister's done well, you know, and I've yeah, become done well as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it was a it was a huge part of forming who we are, being the children of um, of a mum who was struggling with uh, mental health. Yeah, and of course, my upbringing was completely the opposite. I guess I was uh, in a as myself, my sister, uh, a mum and dad. Um, we dad was a plumber, and and mum was sort of working as a secretary. But it was a a very stable environment and a very loving environment um, with lots of uh, family. So my dad had uh, five five other brothers and sisters and mum had uh, four. So it's a big family. And that was, that was so my experience really was of growing up uh, in an environment which was caring um, and one which was very much driven about you work hard and you'll succeed. So that was sort of the background for me. And it wasn't really until um, I'd really left home, completely left home, and started to see a different, completely different environment, um, um, and then started to, to get more exposure to people who had uh, a long history of enduring mental health problems. Um, and if I'm honest, I sort of, in my early life, thought, "What's the what's the what's the big issue? Why what's why are people feeling like this? What what's what's the problem there?" And it's not until you start to have the conversations and you start to talk to people, and you start to understand their lives aren't your life, and your life experiences they're completely different, and you get th and I got thrown into this world which mm. I had no real understanding of, and a bit like you. Um, later on in life, when I was on working on the Strategic Health Authority and I chaired for the Southwest and then the South of England all of the mental health homicides in public and met the families, both of the victims but also of the person that um, uh, committed homicide, how complex people's lives were and how little we knew, really, and how we didn't necessarily learn 
in a systematic way for our services. So that really got me to ask the questions around is is mental health best supported through medical or is it social community? Mm. Uh, and the reality is, of course, it's a combination of the two. And there are things that we can do to create better environments. Um, and it does go back to the very point you said a few minutes ago, which is about, well, if you're in a situation where you're in poverty uh, and the stresses and strains associated with that and your social networks are not supporting, then that's a very difficult place to be. So your mm. mum's experience, I mean, first of all, she she was and is an incredibly strong woman for having gone through all of that. Mm. Uh, and you as, you know, you and your sister, strong people to really succeed. Um, and that's great, but that's not the story of everybody. No. There was um, a GP, so when I was working in the public mental health team, Mm. <clears throat> looking at those very stark uh, numbers around inequalities in mental health as well, different communities um, uh, experiencing, actually interestingly, experiencing the social determinants of mental health very differently. So poor quality housing, poor educational start in life, mm. access to substandard food and so forth, which creates different vulnerabilities in different communities, but also the responsiveness of services. Yeah. So are people accessing mental health services through talking therapy, so early doors, see the GP, I'm not feeling good, here's yeah, yeah. someone to go and speak yeah. to, or are they not getting access and end up entering the mental health services through being arrested yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, from a position of crises, which yeah. is one of those huge injustices in our society, the criminalization of... Um, health, yeah. health inequalities, yeah. um, but also that, those inequalities in the determinants um, of that. But yeah. that's that's where that was my entry point really into um, mental health and recognizing and being confronted with this reality that by far and away the big big determinant of health is our social socioeconomic factors. Yeah. There's a there's a paper that came out a few years ago now called If You Could Do One Thing. It's all about tackling health inequalities. Yeah. And it says that only 10% of health outcomes are down to health services, which is where the, the national conversation around the NHS really needs to mature. The most famous person in health yeah. in the city shouldn't be Simon Stevens, the chief executive of the National Health Service. It should be Duncan Selby, chief executive of Public, Public Health, health England. England. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who's talking about how housing, yeah, yeah. all those things we've talked about, yeah. um, determine health. But so often the conversation is about A&E, fixing fractures, cardiovascular surgery. You know, actually it is looking at transport poverty, for example, you know, yeah. poor access to work experience, yeah. um, those yeah. early interventions. Yeah. And that's where we need to take the city. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with you. And there was a... There was a period where, certainly when I was working in the Strategic Health Authority, um, people like Gabriel Scali uh, and the whole network of public health um, workforce and the Primary Care Trust were really beginning to get some traction, I think. Uh, and the whole emphasis on prevention was beginning to get, to get somewhere. Uh, and I think to some extent you're right. The, the, the conversation was lost to some degree. Public Health England, I think, have a huge part to play because we can't keep trying to deal with the illness end, I guess, of a spectrum. We have to start thinking about, well, what can we do to prevent? And what can we do to reduce the social inequalities that 
are in every city, in every region, in every part of the country. Uh, and yet, we're not good at having those conversations and we're not good at joining up the funding streams in a way that makes sense, that can really tackle. Um, because if we don't do that, I'm pretty clear that the NHS will never have enough money. It will never be able to ever, cope. Ever be no. able to cope. And, and what you do is you end up in a, in, a, in a place that expectations will continue to rise, the demands will increase, but you'll never resolve them. Mm. And I think that that's, to some extent... Um, the sadness really of where we are at the moment that public health has in many ways not got the profile it needs certainly probably hasn't got the funding that it needs and of course as austerity has hit uh, local authorities in particular public health has also been hit as part of that and that for me is something that we need to try and find a way of reversing well we've we've got this horrific situation now whereby um, changes in the economy at large the basic model that drives inequality, yeah. um, changes to welfare and benefits, tax credits, is in, uh, and an aging population, yeah. you know, so are increasing demand at the same time as our services <laughs> are not getting the results they need. And and interestingly, it's not even just frontline services there. I'm, I'm just come from a discussion just now where we're um, with our head of growth and regen, and we're talking about getting our stuff done. Yeah, interestingly, what we need are lawyers. Right? It's the legal capacity to keep the cogs of the city lubricated that deliver that will allow us to deliver the housing right. that are the key interventions for building resilience right? yeah. in people and tackling those um, those inequalities. There's something you said though that may, that that just sparked off a thought. I think that we need to talk beyond prevention as well. It's not even just about the prevention of sickness. It's about delivering well-being. Yeah. So one of our challenges is how do we build a, a way of doing economy, a way of doing society that actually delivers well-being in the first instance? We have a model at the moment that people get sick and then we run after it with program yep. projects and programs and public spending. Yep. Yep. But how can we deliver that? That's why inclusive economic development is important for me. Um, and whatever that means, right? we need to really pin that down. But it has to be about how do we have an economy that builds relationships with, with, between people rather than the one that we've got in Bristol at large at the moment, which is those economic inequalities fractures our society yep. from Hartcliffe to yeah. uh, Sneed Park to Lawrence yeah. Western yeah. and, and Southmead. Yeah. Um, it, it fractures us. And, it, it, um, and I remember the New Economics Foundation, Five Ways to Wellbeing, uh, a few years ago. And one of those is good quality relationships is one of the surest ways of building resilience into people. Yeah. And I like the word resilience in that sense because um, what we're not talking about is eliminating challenge to people, no, no, right? No, no. Because no. actually, um, challenge, is, there's a proverb I use quite a lot, right? And it talks about hope. I always prefer hope to optimism. Um, because hope, it says, optimism to me just says whatever's going on i'm just going to look on the sunny side of life i find that weak and superficial but this proverb says we don't despise our sufferings because suffering produces perseverance perseverance character and character hope and hope is the mature place because you know what life is going to challenge and actually it's good to face challenge because yeah. then you build those sources of resilience you yeah. know yeah. what we need to do is um put the conditions in place that enable people to overcome challenges, actually, because that's the only way of becoming the fullness of a, yeah. of a human being. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. We've had that conversation in the university where uh, I, I see that whole piece around resilience as hugely positive because, um, you know, there are things that, that life's going to throw at you that are going to challenge. And 
if we can develop in people the ability and the tools, basically, to be able to work through those challenges and to then grow from them, learn from them, move on, that's a huge part of what I think the university should be doing because what we're seeing, I guess, is that um, in society generally, that resilience, that ability to um, cope with the challenges of which there are huge, multiple different challenges coming at young people all the time, um, can overwhelm them. And unless we start to work to develop in them that resilience, which I see as a positive, then they are going to struggle. Uh, and one of the conversations we're having at UWE at the moment in particular is about our 2030 strategy. And right in the middle of that 2030 strategy, I'm talking about uh, a healthy university. What does a healthy university mm. look like? And whilst, you know, clearly our primary aim is to ensure that we give a high quality education and support our students and staff to, to succeed in their academic endeavour, we're also an organisation that should be about thrive and flourish. It should be about life. It should yeah. be about creating a whole raft of experiences that develop in individuals a healthy lifestyle in the round. Mm. So it's a bit like the public health, uh, World Health Organization's definition of what is healthy. That's what we need to do, I think, in all of our organisations. And I don't think 10 years ago, necessarily organizations necessarily were thinking that way universities certainly weren't um thinking about the health and well-being of all of the individuals in an organization and having those conversations and in particular working out what you can do to create an environment that is open that is engaging and an environment that is inviting people to have difficult conversations sometimes but also to share and to be human and that I think, begins to move us down a road that hopefully creates a, a more positive way of thinking. I think you can also argue that's what we need to do at citywide level. Mm. It's the same set of issues. And understanding difference is a big part of that. Mm. Um, I think what struck me about our conversation is we've started very personally and very quickly we've gone up to City Solutions, right? which yeah. is, which is yeah, actually yeah, yeah. appropriate because yeah. that's, our, that's, that's what the we're job. looking at. <laughs> With the LEP and heading a university, yeah. which is a small town, really, yeah. in in, yeah. A, in a city, and me uh, being mayor, the 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 th one thing that we did talk about a few years ago as well about how we position health, yeah, um, and well being uh, within the city as well. One is that sickness is a liability; it's an economic liability. This is as we talk about um, delivering better health and well being. This is not a nice to have; it's essential, it's essential. Yeah. and uh, on a number of fronts. Uh, one is um, with the resilience of your economy to be able to cope with change. And also co-create it. Yeah. Actually lead some of it. Um, doing that. But secondly is the economic positioning as well. Yeah. And you remember we've thrown this phrase around a few times, haven't we? What would it be worth to our economy if we were able to say we have the most well-workforce in Europe with the fewest numbers of days of absenteeism? Yeah. One is if you come here, you will not pick up millions of pounds of costs in absenteeism. But secondly, if people come to work and they have the ability to overcome challenge, they have the ability to fail without being failures and, ha and have it drive them to ground, you end up with innovation, you end up with entrepreneurialism, you've got people in your workforce who are problem solvers rather than yeah. quitters and come to you with problems. It, it stitches into the economy yeah. an incredible yeah. uh, dynamism. 
yeah. and creativity that the world is so desperately in need of right now. Yeah, absolutely. You've been listening to the Let's Talk Now podcast, part of You Bristol's Mental Wealth Lab initiative. You can let us know what you thought of this episode by getting in touch with us via Twitter at UE Bristol. Use the hashtag Let's Talk Now. If you're interested in being part of future podcasts, we'd also love to hear from you. Until next time, take care and thanks for listening.